We're revisiting the topic of election. Uh, this is part two. Last week, what we covered was we covered um, the views, kind of the primary views of election. This is on page three of your handout. Sorry, I should have numbered them. But on page three, we talked about several of the major views. Um, just to summarize, we talked about foresight election, which essentially says that God chose us because in eternity past, he foresaw or foreknew that we would choose him by faith someday in the future. And so he chose us for salvation based on that foreknowledge of our faith. Um, and we talked about 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 1 through 2, where Peter's writing to the elect exiles, and he says they're elect according to the foreknowledge of God. So we know that the foreknowledge of God is indeed the basis of election. It's just people debate back and forth, what is that foreknowledge? Then we talked about number two, the corporate election view. Um, this one essentially says that Christ is the chosen one of God. Um, and that once we are in Christ, then we are also part of the elect, but it's a corporate view of election. God didn't elect individuals. Instead, he elected Christ, and by our participation and union with Christ, therefore we are elect. Then, number three, um, individual pre-temporal election. Um, some might call this like a Calvinistic view. Essentially, what this one says is that in eternity past, God elected individuals, so he foreknew in the sense of relationship. And we'll look at some of those texts that they would use to support that view. Um, but in eternity past, he foreknew them in a relational sense. Um, and, but he elected unconditionally, not based upon foreseeing our faith, but they would say he elected based upon his good will. So based upon his grace. Those are the three major views, but there is another view um, that I mentioned it, oh, I don't know, several weeks ago. Um, I'm trying to remember the guy's first name, but it's by Molina. Molina was the name of the guy. Let's see if we can, if I can remember his name here. Google can help us maybe. There it is. I can't even pronounce it. Louis de Molina. So, L-U-I-S. He presents a fourth view. Um, he was a 16th century Spanish Jesuit priest. So, his view of election um, is that God has what he would call middle knowledge. And middle knowledge is, we would agree with him, middle knowledge is that God does not just have knowledge of all actualities. In other words, he knows the future just as he knows the past. But God also knows all potentialities. In other words, if this, then this. God can see, you know, just like a master chess player might be able to guess his opponent's view ahead of time. Well, God knows what anyone would do given any situation. And so Molina takes that and he says, well, what if God's foreknowledge and God's election is, um, oh, how to put it? Essentially, God knows what circumstances to bring about such that those who were chosen would then believe on him um, because he knows in what circumstances we would make what decisions. Does that make sense? 
So then God's election is based on that middle knowledge of what potential decisions we would make. And it's an attempt to preserve free will. That's what it's an attempt to do. Because some would charge Calvinism or Reformed theology with God's election eroding free will. So if God chose us before the foundations of the world and we had no choice in the matter, well then where's free will? Now, that's not a fair representation of many Calvinists. Um, They hold to a very robust theology of free will, but they are charged with that. So Molina's goal was to try to preserve free will, to show, well, God didn't force anyone's hand through election. He just brought about the circumstances in which they made the choice to choose God. But at the same time, then, others have the choice to reject him, and his goal was to preserve free will. Does that make sense? Okay. That one's kind of a fun view that you can think about. Um, and it, definite, it has some definite merits. So then we talked through just a brief history of this discussion. Remember, patristic theology basically was focused on the person of Christ. There was very little discussion of the work of Christ because they were having debates of Well, is Jesus just pretending to be human, or is he actually human? Or is Jesus actually God, or was he just a really good man? Those are the kinds of debates they were settling in the first 400 years of church history. Then, there was, toward the end of the patristic period, which was about 0 to 400 AD, um, there was a guy named Pelagius um, that we'll talk about more um, later in soteriology, but he presented the view that... um, that man is basically good is kind of his view that, well, let me try to read it from my notes here. He taught that mankind had within him the ability to live without sin and the natural ability to pursue God on one's own because Adam's sin had not directly affected subsequent generations. Adam merely set a bad example. So, reminding ourselves of homartiology, we argued from the scripture that there's something called total depravity as well as inherited corruption, that sin has affected us in every way. Not that we're as bad as we can be, but that it has affected every aspect of our beings. Pelagius, though, he taught that we, that we could, on our own, choose God and that we could live a life of perfection, essentially, um, without God's help. And we have the natural ability to pursue God. Then a theologian you've probably heard of, Augustine, um, he pushed back on that. He said, no, um, Augustine said that there's total depravity, kind of what we argued for, um, that sin has affected us, and without God's first pursuing us, we would not pursue him. So then that that developed in medieval theology about 400 to 1500, we have... Um, the primary view of the church was something of semi-Pelagianism. In other words, maybe not that man is basically good and can pursue God on our own, but that mankind does cooperate with God in salvation. That there's something that we can bring to the table. Um, so a quote from a guy named Gabriel Beale. He said this in about 1495. Um, he said, God will not deny grace to those who do what lies within them. So it's, a, it's kind of a middle ground between Pelagius and Augustine. But then that framed 
that frames the debate that starts in Reformation theology. You've got our prominent theologians like Martin Luther, John Calvin, etc., who pioneered um, some major theologies or rediscovered, uh, like Martin Luther, justification by faith alone and Christ alone. The Catholic Church had largely, largely lost that. And Martin Luther was pushing back on the idea of indulgences and things that we could somehow do in order to merit favor with God. Then we've got John Calvin, which it's interesting. A lot of people view John Calvin with maybe a negative bent, um, especially because they see um, the extreme of the position that John Calvin started with. So his follower, who his later successor, um, Thomas Beza, sorry, Theodore Beza, keep all these names straight, Theodore Beza, he took Calvin's view to the extreme. Calvin's main contribution to our soteriology is a distinction between justification and sanctification, that there's a difference. When you are justified at salvation, you're not automatically perfect and sanctified, but that there's a process from the time of salvation until we go to heaven and are glorified. That was Calvin's main contribution. He does talk a little bit about predestination, but um, you could go and read it. I don't think it's probably anything that would make any of us uncomfortable. He was not strongly stating any position. But then Theodore Beza, he takes the view to the extreme, and he argues that before God, even in eternity past, decreed the fall of Adam. So that's interesting. He believes God decreed the fall of Adam. Before God decreed that, he actually decreed the election and the future then salvation of those who, who are now believers. So he predestinated some to eternal life, but he also then, Beza said, predestinated some to eternal fire. Anyways, so that's the extreme position of Calvinism that a lot of people have, and rightfully so, a problem with. But Calvin didn't teach that. Um, but then, that's where we come out of that with kind of the debate. Arminianism versus Calvinism, and then people trying to take the Molinism position, the middle, the middle knowledge, middle grounds. So, if you want more church history on that, I've got a little bit more notes. We could talk more about it. But any questions on that, defining our, the positions that are kind of out there, and then the church history side of things? Questions or comments that far? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I haven't read Jonathan Edwards' writings, so I couldn't speak precisely about him, but he did. He wrote the sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. Very powerful uh, sermon, because it was the Word of God. But, yeah, a, a, he was a Puritan, right? A lot of the Puritans were actually more Calvinistic than they were Arminian. Just a generalization. I haven't read Jonathan Edwards on it, so I couldn't tell us exactly. We could look that up, though. What was the middle ground you first encountered? Uh, Louis de Molina. L-U-I-S de Molina. Yeah, and that's, a, that's a, an intriguing position. A lot of people, 
a lot of modern theologians are really drawn to that, ones who are struggling between Calvinism and Arminianism. I've had good friends going through school who that was kind of where they started to land because it is somewhat of a middle ground. Well, sometimes I afraid that the white people in some sort of passport Yep. Yeah, it's a, it's a lot of times how we view history and, and how God uh, directs it. Yeah, it's a very natural view of that side of it, of providence. Good. Well then, well, then we're ready to start into some word studies and just see how these Hebrew and Greek words are used. Um, I think that's one of the most helpful things to do. Man, the heat's not kicking on. Doesn't it? Dude, that's because you're wearing a suit We pro- maybe we're out of propane in this tank. Who knows? <laughs> yeah, I hope not. James, you got to help me remember. We got to fix that light after this. This is where the real Christians come. That's right. Wow. I'm just thankful we don't have to have outdoor services today. <laughs> It'd be short. Oh man. All right. So let's start into a Hebrew word study first with the Hebrew word bachar. Um, This word shows up in the Hebrew Old Testament 170 times, so I did not represent all of those uses. This is a very selective list that you have on your page, but let's start, let's just get an idea of how the word is used. Go to Genesis 13. So Genesis 13, and just recall the the story up to this point, what's kind of happening. This is, remember, God calls Abraham, Abram at the time, to leave. You are a blessing. Um, Sorry? Can I unplug this? Yep. God calls Abram to leave his homeland and to head out um, to a land that God will show him. Remember that? And then Abram goes down into Egypt and makes a foolish decision to say that Sarai, who is his wife, is merely his sister and gets in trouble for that a little bit. But then he comes out very wealthy. Remember that? And so then, Genesis chapter 13, Abram comes out of Egypt extremely rich. This is verse 2. Abram was very rich in livestock and silver and in gold. And he heads out into the land God told him to go to. Then we get down to verse, uh, verse 5, Genesis 13, 5. 
Lot also, which went with Abram, had flocks and herds and tents, and the land was not able to bear them, that they might dwell together, for their substance was great, so that they could not dwell together. And there was strife between the herdmen of Abram's cattle and the herdmen of Lot's cattle. So then Abram, you know, he goes to Lot, hey, let's not have strife between our herdsmen. Um, and he gives Lot the choice where he wants to go. This is where our, where our verb is used. Lot looks up, this is verse 10, lifts his eyes, beheld all the plain of Jordan, that it was well watered everywhere before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah, even as the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt, as you come into Zoar. Then Lot chose. That's the Hebrew word bakar. Lot chose him all the plain of Jordan. And Lot journeyed east, and they separated themselves the one from the other. So that's kind of just the very generic use of the term. Lot looks at his choices, and he makes a selection. Lot chose. Then, let's see. Maybe let's go over to Joshua 24 for one more instance like this. Joshua chapter 24. So Joshua 24, um, they've been doing a lot of battle against the Canaanites. Joshua, he's gathered all the people together. They're getting ready to make a covenant. Um, Joshua 24, 14. Now therefore fear the Lord, serve him in sincerity and in truth, and put away the gods which were your fathers, which your fathers served on the other side of the river and in Egypt. Serve the Lord. And if it seem evil unto you to serve the Lord, choose you this day whom you will serve, whether the gods which your fathers served or the gods of the Amorites, but he says, but as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. So he calls on the children of Israel. He says, make a choice. Choose today who you're going to serve. That's the Hebrew word, bachar. Again, a pretty generic op- a pretty generic usage of the term. Here's your options. Serve the idols or serve God. Make a choice. Um, the verb is used a whole bunch in the book of Deuteronomy. <clears throat> it's used there of the place the Lord will choose. That's whatever that is, one, two, three, four, five, the sixth option down. The place that the Lord is going to choose. The place the Lord is going to choose. Deuteronomy keeps using that, speaking of the place that God is going to choose where his presence is going to dwell, where the tabernacle is going to stay. So, but then let's look at it in more of uh, the sense that we're talking about as it relates to salvation. Deuteronomy 4. But with that in mind, out of these 170 usages of the term in the Old Testament, the majority of them are generic uses where it's make a choice. So Deuteronomy chapter 4. And this is in the covenant reiteration. Moses is reminding the second generation out of, the, out, of, out of Egypt. They've been wandering in the desert. Now he's reminding them of the covenant that God made with his children. That's verse 31. He will not forsake you nor destroy you nor forget the covenant of your fathers, which he swore to them. But then look down to verse 37. 
He says, and because he loved your fathers, therefore he chose their descendants after them. Because he loved your fathers, therefore he chose their seed after them and brought you out in his sight with his mighty power out of Egypt to drive out nations greater and mightier than you, etc. That's kind of interesting. So what does it say, what would be the basis of God's choosing their fathers, according to that verse? Because he loved them. Because he loved them. Now we know God loves everyone. He loves all humanity. John 3.16 readily shows that. For God so loved the world. There's no one that God doesn't love. But then this is obviously some sort of a special love. God loved their fathers and chose their seed after them. Okay, now remember, we're making a distinction. We're not saying that God's choosing Israel is the same as his choosing um, individuals for salvation, but there, is, there are some parallels to be gleaned. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So then Deuteronomy 7, um, let's look at that one, Deuteronomy 7. But then Deuteronomy 10 talks about the same sort of thing as Deuteronomy 4 just did, how God set his heart in love on their fathers and chose their offspring. But Deuteronomy chapter 7, we're familiar with this text, verse 6. For you are a holy people unto the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you, Hebrew word bachar, he's chosen you to be a special people unto himself, above all people that are on the face of the earth. The Lord did not set his love upon you, nor choose you, because you were more in number than any people, for you were the fewest of all people. But because the Lord loved you, and because he would keep the oath which he had sworn unto your fathers, has the Lord brought you out with a mighty hand, and redeemed you out of the house of bondmen, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Know therefore that the Lord your God, he is God, the faithful God, which keeps covenant and mercy with them that love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations." and repays them that hate him to their face to destroy them. He will not be slack to him that hates him. He will repay them, repay him to his face. So that one's kind of interesting. Verses 6 and 7. Sure, yeah, absolutely. God's, God's justice is conditional. Yep. He says he keeps mercy and covenant for those that love him and keep his commandments. Yeah, but then he repays those who hate him. Yeah. So we've gone from an individual choosing to God choosing a, a seed, a corporate kind of choice, mm-hmm. to God choosing an individual. Mm-hmm. So, which is interesting here, because we've got to make the distinction. We're drawing some parallels from God's selection of Israel. But remember, just because God chose Israel to be his special people, that's what he, he says here that he chose them for, to be a special people unto himself, toward the end of verse 6. He chose them to be his special people, but not everyone in Israel was saved. We see that time and time again as you work through your Old Testament. There were lots of unsaved Israelites. So we've got to make a distinction. At the same time, 
what basis did God make his elective purpose of Israel, according to verses 6 and 7? It's not because they were the greatest and mightiest nation on earth. My translation, God didn't choose them because they were awesome, but because he was good, because he was going to keep his covenant to their forefathers. Yeah. And so he's chosen the weakest nation to proclaim his glory. Exactly. And that's what it means that God chose Israel to be a special people, was they were to be a beacon of God's light to the world so that people would see what a great God Yahweh is and then to turn their faith to him. So it's interesting. Comments that far? Thoughts? More thoughts? Warren? I just keep thinking that how do you know when someone's really a born again Christian? Well, one of the obvious things is by their works. Mm-hmm. And have they chosen to serve God? Or are they choosing their own path and their own interests and their own selfishness? Yeah. And, and maybe that's part of this too is that choose this day whom you'll serve. Yep. You see people who have chosen, I want to receive salvation, I want to be accepted by God, but they're not really choosing to serve Him. Yep. And if you don't choose to serve Him, are you serving the Old Testament? If they are serving Him, mm-hmm. you're serving someone else. Yeah, absolutely. We were thinking about that at the all-nighter. We talked about Luke 9, 57 to 62, where Jesus is talking about the cost of discipleship. And at the end of it, he says, no one who puts their hand to the plow and looks back is worthy of the kingdom of God. So there's absolutely, God calls for undivided loyalty to him. Yeah. Not perfection. That's, but loyalty. That's a good synonym for faith. Let's look at some Greek terms. Um, We've got several Greek terms. Two of them are, um, all I can think of is compadres. They're from the same root word. Eklektos is the adjective, and eklegamai is the verb. So those are cognates. There we go, cognates. Good grief. Yeah, that's right. We got some compadres here. So we don't have to look through all of these. We can if you want. But <clears throat> um, So I give us, we've got these texts, but um, just a couple definitions of this Greek word um, from, a, from a Greek lexicon pertaining to be selected for eklektos, pertaining to being selected. Um, another one says pertaining to being especially distinguished. In other words, elect. So we can look through these, and there's several different ways that this word is used as we go. Uh, maybe we can start with Jesus' usage in Matthew 22. Matthew 22, he's given this parable of the marriage feast. Recall that, where they're supposed to go out and invite um, invite certain people to the wedding, um, and they're not willing to come. So he tells his servants to tell them, hey, I've prepared my dinner. But then they, they still don't want to do it. They seize his servants, treat them spitefully, and kill them. So the king hears about it and is furious and sends out his armies, destroys those murderers, burns up their cities. 
Remember that parable? That's the parable where we're at. So then he has the servants go out to just tell everyone that they can find. You're invited. But verse 11, when the king came in to see his guests, he saw there a man which had not on a wedding garment. And he says unto him, friend, how came you in hither not having a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Then said the king to the servants, bind him hand and foot and take him away and cast him into outer darkness. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. But then our verse, verse 14, for many are called, but few are chosen. Sure. Yeah, very well. That would be, um, that would be a, a pertinent interpretation of the parable. So they really weren't chosen. Mm-hmm. They just thought they was. Yeah. <laughs> yep. But that's interesting, thinking about Jesus' words at the end of that. For many are called, but few are chosen. Let's just flip over a couple chapters to chapter 24. We're now in the Olivet Discourse. Um, Jesus has given quite a bit of teaching up on the Mount of Olives. That's verse 3. Now as he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, Tell us when will these things be, and what will be the sign of your coming at the end of the age? So we know we're in an eschatological context. Jesus is talking about things related to the end of time. But he uses this word chosen several times in this, um, in this section. Look down to verse 22. He's talking about the tribulation. Verse 21. For then shall be great tribulation, such as was not since the beginning of the world to this time, known nor ever shall be. And except those days should be shortened, there should no flesh be saved. But for the elect's sake, those days shall be shortened. So something about the tribulation, it's going to be terrible. If the days were to just keep going, everyone would die. But God shortens it for the sake of the elect. He uses the same word, verse 24, um, starting 23. Then if any man shall say unto you, Lo, here is Christ, or there, believe it not. For there shall arise false Christs and false prophets, and shall show great signs and wonders, insomuch that if it were possible, they shall deceive the very elect. Behold, I have told you before, wherefore, if they shall say unto you, Behold, he's in the desert, go not forth. Behold, he's in the secret chambers, believe it not. For as the lightning comes out of the east and shines even unto the west, so shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. For wheresoever the carcass is, there will the eagles be gathered together. But look down, well, we'll just keep reading. We're going for verse 31. Immediately after the tribulation of those days shall the sun be darkened, the moon shall not give her light, and the stars shall fall from heaven, and the powers of the heavens shall be shaken. And then shall appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven. And then shall all the tribes of the earth mourn. And they shall see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he shall send his angels with a great sound of a trumpet. And they shall gather together his elect from the four winds, from one end of the heaven to the other. So he says, God is going to shorten this tribulation for the elect's sake. He says that don't believe it if during this tribulation people say, here's Christ or there is Christ, even if they do wonderful signs. They're going to do such wonderful signs that if it were possible, even the very elect would be deceived. And then he says at the end of this, the sun's going to be darkened, moon won't give her light, stars are going to start falling out of heaven. Son of man shows up 
and he sends his angels to gather his elect. Pretty clearly more than a generic sense of the term elect. So that's some of Jesus' teaching on it. Yeah, yeah, and the, the corporate side of it, there's a difference between this corporate view of election um, and the understanding of Israel's being elect as a corporate body, a nation. They're God's chosen people, but they're not all saved because of that. The corporate view of salvific election, that's the difference, and we're coming to some texts that will help us, um, that will help us define some of this. But, yeah. Are we individuals to become corporate? Corporate Greeks, corporate. Anyway, I just like to think we're saved. We're called elect when you're saved. You follow them. It's taken away. Yep. Yeah, I like that. Simplify it down to its core. Exactly. Um, I'm just trying to look down through my text to see if there's one that was jumping out to me that I meant to. Well, unless you care, we can just kind of keep working down through this list and see some other usages. Let's do that. Romans has several usages. Um, While you're going there, Luke 18, that's the parable of the persistent widow who's going to an unjust judge, and she keeps pleading her case. And finally, the unjust judge awards her with what she's been requesting. Um... And he's an unjust judge. And the point that Jesus is making in the parable is how much more God is the just judge will he hear if we pray. But he says in there, Jesus says, And shall not God avenge his own elect, which cry day and night unto him, though he bear long with them? Um, well, we could go and look at it some more. I don't think it's so much that side of it as it is. Just looking at God being so just. So just. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. I think the, the, it's a contrast parable. Instead of saying like, like the widow had to keep coming to this judge because she wasn't getting justice, it's actually the contrast because Right, it's God hears us and he answers and he gives justice for his elect without us having to, yeah. That's a simplification of the parable, but yeah, that's kind of the moral of it. Where did I say we were going? Romans 8, right? Romans eight thirty three. So Paul has been arguing all through the book of Romans, thinking on sin, Salvation 
And now he's in this subject of sanctification in Romans chapters 6, 7, and 8. Um, he's talked a lot about the Holy Spirit who has been given to us to help free us from indwelling sin. He reminds us that we are sons because he causes us to cry out, Abba, Father. That's verse 15. And then there's this groaning that's taking place. Creation is groaning. And because we have the Spirit, we are also groaning. The Spirit groans. We're longing for the consummation of salvation um, at the end of times when God makes all things new. But we get it down, well, we're going for verse 33, but let's start in 28 because this all is related. We know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose. For whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his son that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he did predestinate, them he also called. Whom he called, them he also justified. Whom he justified, them he also glorified. What shall we then say to these things? If God be for us, who can be against us? He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It is God that justifies. Who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died, yea, rather, that is risen again, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. And then we've got this section on who will separate us from the love of Christ. And he lists off a bunch of stuff and says none of these things can. But he makes the point in verse 33, who can lay a charge to God's elect? And it's a rhetorical question anticipating a negative answer. If Christ died and arose again and is making intercession on behalf of these ones who were foreknown, predestinated, called, justified, glorified, no one can bring a charge against these elect. This, uh, verse 30 reminds me of what we just talked about. Many are called, but few are chosen. Mm-hmm. And so this is assuming that people who are called according to God's purpose. Yep. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, what uh, terrible applications we could make from that. Huh. <laughs> oh, my. Oh, my. But then, and we're going to come and talk about Romans 9 some more, because it's kind of one of the pinnacle passages on election. So we'll come back to it, but it's talking about God's election of Israel He says that he's not rejected his elect people, um, but they're temporarily set aside because the Gentiles have been grafted in um, to make them jealous. But he uses some pretty powerful illustrations through there. And then we get down to Romans chapter, well, go over to chapter 16. That's the next time this word is used, the adjective form. Romans 16, verse 13. It's in Paul's closing to his letter. He's giving all these greetings of these people he wants them to tell hi for him. In verse 13, he says, Greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord, and his mother and mine. That's kind of interesting. A similar um, passage, 2 John verse 1. He calls her the elect lady. The elect lady. The chosen lady. This is... 
the audience of John's letter, 2 John, and he calls her the elect sister in 2 John 13. So is it shorthand for someone who's a Christian? They're elect. Interesting. Let's, uh, let's talk some conclusions based on what we've looked at so far today. We'll have to pick this up next time. What do you mean? The only ones who will be taken? Thoughts as we, we'll just have to pick this up next week. Well, not next Sunday. Next Sunday's Christmas, so there's no Sunday school. Correct. So we'll pick it up the 1st of January. Yeah, I'll have to. Yeah.